Our focus this evening is on Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. We've already gone through the first chapter in, in several sermons on this book and have seen Solomon's struggle with what, is, what amounts to be one of the biggest challenges, if not the biggest challenge in this life. How do we account for life in this world, a life that is in a world under the curse, a life that is brief and fleeting, a life in which we bear the consequences of sin in our lives. We are not the only ones to go through that struggle. Solomon himself did, and he, by the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, has left his testimony for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. We saw him identify himself in chapter 1, verse 1, and then in chapter 2, or chapter 1, verses 2 through 11, we saw him raise in that prologue, raise that, that motto that is so fundamental to his struggle. He says in verse 2 of chapter 1, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And we define that as a vapor, that life and everything in it, all of our endeavors, are fleeting. It is like a vapor that disappears quickly into the air. How do we then find significance in this brief life in light of that reality? We saw then in chapter 1 verses 12 to 18 that Solomon first turned to the ivory tower. He first turned to human reasoning. He sought to find significance and explain the enigmas of this life by retreating to all the intellectual resources that he had. And he was a man unparalleled in those resources. He sought to explore by by calculation and by investigation a way to find significance in this life that is unstable and brief and can end at any moment And as we saw, Solomon found that the ivory tower, human philosophy, autonomous reasoning does not help. Well, what we find now in chapter 2 is that Solomon will leave the ivory tower and he will go into what I will call vanity fair. Now, some of you might be familiar with that term. It comes from John Bunyan's very famous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. And about halfway through the account of Pilgrim named Christian, we find Pilgrim or Christian entering a town called Vanity. And I'll pick it up in in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress at this point where John Bunyan writes this. Then I saw in my dream... That when Christian and faithful who had joined him along the way to the celestial city, that when Christian and faithful had left the wilderness, they soon saw a town, a town ahead of them named Vanity. And that town in it is a fair called Vanity Fair, and it is kept open all the year long. It bears the name of Vanity Fair because the town there is held, the town where it is held is lighter than vanity, and also because all that is sold there is vanity. As is the saying of the wise, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He continues in his allegory, he says this this fair is no newly erected business, but a thing of ancient standing. I will show you its origin. Almost 5,000 years ago, there were pilgrims journeying to the celestial city, such as these two honest people. Beelzebub, Apollyon, and Legion, along with their companions, perceived by the path which the pilgrims made that their way to the city lay through this town of vanity. They therefore contrived to set up a fair here in which all sorts of vanity should be sold and that it should last all the year long. Therefore, all kinds of merchandise are sold at this fair, such as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, 
preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts, such as harlots, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. Moreover, at this fair are always to be seen juggling, cheats, games, plays, fools, fakes, knaves, and rogues, and that of every kind. Here to be seen also, and without cost, thefts, murders, adulteries, and liars. He goes on to say this, This fair, therefore, is of ancient standing and very renowned. Now these pilgrims, as I said, had to go through this fair, and so they did. If you'd go on reading, you would find that as Christian and faithful go through this town called Vanity, they seek to get through it quickly without being distracted, but they are noticed because of three things. First of all, uh, their, their dress. They, they don't wear the same kinds of clothes as the residents. Secondly, their speech. They don't speak the same kind of language. And thirdly, they're not interested in the wares of this fair. Christian and faithful are then arrested, and it is there at Vanity Fair where faithful is martyred. Christian escapes to be able to go on his way further. But what we see in Vanity Fair and Pilgrim's Progress is very much what Solomon saw as he sought to find significance in this world. Having tried Ivory Tower, he then is left with this aftertaste in his mouth in verse 17 of chapter 1 that he had set his mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly and he realized that this also is striving after the wind. And so beginning in chapter 2 verse 1, Solomon begins a new experiment, and this experiment is not in the ivory tower. This experiment, we could say, is in Vanity Fair. Solomon deliberately goes to this fair, so to speak, in order to sample its merchandise and to determine whether perhaps there, this fair could provide what the ivory tower could not. And that's what we will focus on in Chapter 2, verses 1 to 17, this evening. To help us work through this text, I'm actually going to reach into the New Testament to a text that also speaks of Vanity Fair, and that is 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, the Apostle John gives us categories of sin related to this kind of fair. John writes this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It is from this city called vanity. And so tonight as we go through verses 1 to 17 of Ecclesiastes 2, we're going to organize our thoughts around the categories of sin that we find Solomon flirting with in Ecclesiastes 2. The first of these is the lust of the flesh. Ecclesiastes 2 verses 1 to 3. Here Solomon writes this. He says, I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while while my mind was guiding me wisely, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. You see here that Solomon is struggling with that reality of life's transience. The few years that the sons of men have, how are they to spend it? He has already sought to test that with with rationalism and it was found wanting. Now he goes to pleasure and says, come now, I will take you and I will apply you to this problem and see whether there is a solution found here. 
and perhaps for many men, the ivory tower is not that appealing. Ascending those stairways to the top and to human philosophy and autonomous reasoning in some kind of sophisticated way is is too much work. Instead, Vanity Fair is much more appealing. And so as we go through this, even as we read these verses, we see that this appeals to the baseness that is still within us. We can identify with this. Solomon resorts now to the pathway of pleasure. He describes his experiment here in terms of a monologue. He's already started that in the previous section. You could look at verse 16. He refers to, to talking to himself. And, 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 and we must take note of that because we must recognize that Solomon's problem here is this. It's not that he knows he has a problem. Solomon is good in that regard. But the problem is he's talking to himself There's no prayer here. In light of the reality that life is a mere vapor, it's here this moment and then gone the next, that reality should have driven Solomon to beseech the Lord for the significance that he needed in the few short days that he had on this earth. But at this moment in his life, unlike he had done earlier, Solomon does not beseech the Lord Instead, he speaks to himself, and he appeals to that baseness in his flesh. As the Legacy Standard Bible describes it or translates verse 1, Solomon says this, I said in my heart, I will test you with gladness so that you will see good things. What Solomon is after here in this section, expressed particularly in verse 1, is not just mere stimulation. He's after the enjoyment of pleasure. This is a sophisticated pursuit. One commentator writes it this way. He says, the preacher, quote, was trying not only pleasure, but the pursuit of pleasure. In other words, he was trying out the pursuit of pleasure with the goal of having enjoyment so as to test or to evaluate whether the pursuit of pleasure was worth it. Solomon is, is, is after much more than a mere momentary experience. It, it, there's much more sophistication here. Solomon is thinking that perhaps the brevity of life means that in the few short years that we have, the enjoyment of pleasure, the reasoned, the balanced enjoyment of pleasure is going to give us that feeling of satisfaction. In this sense, for a moment having taken off the cap of the rationalist in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, Solomon puts on now the cap of the hedonist, the person who believes that the pursuit of pleasure is the most important thing in life. Solomon tests that. That philosophy is not just a recent one. It has been around since the beginning of sin itself. And we must recognize, too, that, that while we, we, we look at this and we say, well, no, that's not me, uh, I'm more of the rationalist, or that's below me, we must realize in ourselves an identity with Solomon here that this idea of pursuing pleasure is so dominant in our lives. And what Solomon is doing for us is he is leaving for us his testimony of its emptiness, In specific, he says that he tries laughter. And we could understand that as Solomon first tries in this foray into Vanity Fair, he first tries the booth, the kiosk, that offers merriment. It's where all the jesters are. It's where the comedians are. And certainly we recognize that laughter is a a wonderful thing in the right time and for the right purpose. Proverbs 17 verse 22 says, A joyful heart is good medicine and a broken spirit dries up the bones. 
It is a good thing that we gather here, for example, on a Wednesday night, us guys, and, and, and we laugh together. That's a good thing. In fact, it's one of the most delightful experiences here during the, the break times is to hear all the laughter here. It shows us it's a place of joy, and, and, and so much of that is just an outworking of the joy of the Lord. But what Solomon is after here is not the, the joy of the Lord. Rather, he is after escape. He is using comedy for relief. It is for him a retreat from the pressing issues of reality, of that reality that life is coming to an end very quickly. And so he sought to escape into comedy. Sinclair Ferguson describing how the, per, the, the, the pursuit of laughter or the uh, descent or retreat into laughter can be a bad thing. He says this, the pleasures of laughter can be the gratification of cruelty, even an expression of hatred or jealousy. But most of the time, the truth is that laughter is simply empty. And you look at it as Sinclair Ferguson does. He says, what's interesting to note is when you look at the life of Jesus you never see him described as laughing. Now, that's not to say that he never did. We must assume that he did. But in the gospel writer's account, as that perfect man was faced with the dilemma, not of his own being, but of the souls of others, as he is bearing the weight of that brevity and the consequences in the lives of other men of the fleetingness of life because of the curse and sin that Jesus is, is sober, that he's got a seriousness to him, that there is very much in his life a time for tears in Jesus And when we come back to Solomon, indeed, we can understand why, having tried comedy, he didn't find an answer because the fleetingness of life is no laughing matter. You can't laugh it away. He also tries at the booth right next door, he tries wine, he says. Verse 3. He says, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven for the few years of their lives. He experiments with alcohol for two reasons. First of all, to stimulate his body, he says, and secondly, to take hold of folly. Now, it's interesting that I think medicinally, they classify alcohol as a depressant. But initially, when alcohol is consumed, it functions as a stimulant. It causes the brain to release, I think it's dopamine or something like that, to to release it so that there's this new impulse of energy and good feelings. And Solomon said, I'm going to do that to stimulate my body so that I'll feel good. The, The reality that life is a vapor is, is not an easy thing to digest, so let me drink it away. He says, I do that to stimulate my body, to feel good, and secondly, to take hold of folly. As we're going to see, Solomon doesn't go into drunken stupors. He realizes that that kind of reckless abandonment is absolutely destructive and would have no role in possibly trying to find significance in this life. He recognizes that. But he wants to come as close to it as possible. While keeping his wits about him, he wants to imbibe the alcohol. In fact, he says this. He does it with his mind guiding him wisely. He he wants to take in just as much as he can to feel good without crossing the line into drunkenness. It's as if instead of going to that trashy bar to get drunk and fall asleep on the floor, Solomon is going to those pricey wine-tasting boutiques, and he's sipping the wine and trying to 
enjoy it as enough to such an extent and to consume just enough so he gets maximum pleasure without losing his mind. He keeps his wits about him but seeks to press pleasure to the max. And this is all for him a form of escape. Again, Sinclair Ferguson in commenting on this writes this, he says, we call it pleasure-seeking, but the truth is we should really call it escapism. It exists in a dozen guises, only one of which is alcoholic. The reality from which we take flight also exists in many forms. We flee from our own failure, from a marriage or relationship gone sour, from the past, from the future, from the present, from our inability to exercise self-control, or from a hundred other dissatisfactions. The excitement of an affair at whatever level may seem to help us forget the failures in our marriage. Other disappointments may be compensated for by overdrinking, overeating, even overexposure to TV soaps. You can tell he wrote this a while ago. I don't know anybody who still watches TV shows, but say social media. Whatever we substitute for facing up to reality, we learn the hard way that flight is not the answer. It leaves us with the same gnawing emptiness with which we started. And some of you testify openly that this was your background. You can identify with this. This is that pig pen from which you came. Escapism. Trying to drink away all the failures. Trying to use different form of stimulants to give you the pleasure that your life right now isn't giving you. That was your past and you've come out of that. The Lord has saved you. And then there's others of you who are in this right now. Maybe it's even known, maybe not. Maybe it's secretive. But you're doing the same kind of experiment as Solomon. You've made your way into Vanity Fair. And you're at the kiosks. And you're looking for the stimulant. And you're trying them. What will... Will, will be my escape from the problems of my life. From the brevity of this life. From my inability to control my circumstances. From my failed relationships, etc., etc. You're there. And Solomon is writing this to you. Let's keep going. He says in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we see there he summarizes his experience with these words. He says, it too was futility. It too was just a vapor. Whatever goodness, whatever pleasure was there was gone as, as a vapor in the air. He calls it madness and asks himself this rhetorical question, what did it accomplish? And again, There's many of you who look at this and say, I know that feeling. I was there once. And praise the Lord, I'm not there anymore. It was futility. It never delivered. It was deceitful. The booths at Vanity Fair promised so much and you went there to laugh it away or you went there to drink it away or to to, to do other stimulants to to get it out of your mind and, and it never worked. Seeking pleasure and stimulation in and of itself or to escape life's problems every time will be shown to be futile. Even when you're guiding your mind wisely. As Solomon testifies, the abandonment into these things, pursuing these pleasures for escape, only increase the pain. You cannot laugh or drink your way towards significance. Secondly, we see in verses 4 to 8 that Solomon indulges in the lust of the eyes. Maybe if the lust of the flesh, the stimulation of the body won't provide what I need, maybe it's something different. Maybe it's found in the lust of the eyes. 
Notice verses 4 to 8. He says, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines." What Solomon describes here was the, was the pursuit of, of every leader in that time and remains to be the pursuit of pretty much every man. He built his fortress, his house. It took 13 years to build his own palace, twice as long as it took to build the temple. He built these vineyards and gardens. In fact, the language of these vineyards and, and gardens emphasizes again the idea of what the eyes could behold and those vineyards and gardens, the language indicates that what Solomon is trying to do in the absence of significance is reconstruct the Garden of Eden for himself. He wants to build what sinful man was kicked out of. And notice something very important. You probably heard it as I read. There is a repeated phrase that is repeated over and over and over again. For myself, for myself, for myself, for myself, for myself, for myself. And again, we, we read this and we can, uh, we can testify that this appeals to our flesh, doesn't it? It appeals to our eyes. We long to, to see these kinds of things in our possession. We, we want the dominion. We want the possession. We want to build great things. We want to harness all that creativity for ourselves. We want to exercise the power. We want to climb up the corporate ladder. We want to become our own boss. We want to have lots of people work for us. We want the recognition, etc., Etc. And if we go through Solomon's life, it, it jives completely with what we read in, in 1 Kings, for example, the first 11 chapters. Let me read just a few verses from that portion of Scripture. 1 Kings 7, beginning in verse 1. Now Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished all his house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits. A cubit is about a foot and a half. So it was about 150 feet for a house. And its width, 50 cubits, which is about 75 feet. And its height was 30 cubits, which is about 45 feet, on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. It was paneled with cedar above the side chambers, which were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. And it just goes on and on and on and describes Solomon's house. We read in, in 1 Kings chapter 10 the kind of wealth that he amassed. In 1 Kings 10 verses 14 to 20, we read this. Now the weight of gold which came in to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. That is an incredible amount of gold. One talent is around 60 to 75 pounds. And so if my calculations are right, he was bringing in about two tons of gold every year. And you do the math on that, a talent of gold is worth, 75 pounds of gold is worth about $2 million. Times that by 666. He was bringing in the equivalent of billions of dollars of gold. Besides that, from the traders and the wares of the merchants and all the kings of the, of the Arabs and the governors of the country, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold and using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield, so on and so forth. Later on in 1 Kings 10, we read that all of his drinking vessels were gold and all of the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. None of it was silver. It was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. 
For the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And then, of course, we go on to read in 1 Kings 11, we read of his... The, we, we read of that beauty pageant that Solomon organizes in his own home. We read that King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon had held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. His own beauty pageant, in his own home, of the most beautiful women in the world. He went after it out of an attempt to find significance. But rather than giving Solomon significance, these, all these things only distracted him and, and pulled his affection away from the Lord. And, and that Garden of Eden that he thought he was building was not very good as it was pronounced in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, but it was hebel. It was vaporous. It disappeared as as fast as it came into existence. He found that there was nothing to be gained from it under the sun. Again, quoting Sinclair Ferguson, he says this, Our desires are never satisfied. We go from one well to another seeking water to quench our thirst, but the wells of the pleasure seekers are empty. This explains why the pleasure seekers can never be pleasure keepers. What he's saying is this, as Solomon experienced and writes for us, when you go after pleasure for pleasure's sake, you will never arrive at that destination. There is in that a whole world of deceit. You think that if you just get that next pleasure, that next accomplishment, it'll make your life whole that you're going to feel significant, you will have meaning and purpose. But when you pursue these things for pleasure's sake, it never delivers. And that's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 3.13 says that sin is deceitful. The lust of the eyes is so deceitful. And in fact, when we look on the greatest men of this world today, There's one conclusion we should draw about many of them. Of course, we don't know for certain. We don't know men's hearts. But the reality of this, many men pursue greatness not because they are great, but because they're empty. Think of that. Some of us pursue careers and the corporate ladder and the beautiful house and the posh bank account, and the sports car, and you list all these things that Solomon in his day was after. Some, of, some men pursue and accomplish those things, not because they're great, but because they are empty. They have nothing. And this is the best that they can do with their empty, vaporous lives. And that's what Solomon experienced. But there's more. We see also this come to somewhat of a climax in verses 9 through 11 as we see the boastful pride of life in Solomon. He begins in verses 9 and 10 saying this. He says, Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. 
Now, in the moment, as Solomon is pursuing these things and achieving these things, there is, there is a sense of satisfaction. There is a sense of gratification. He, he says, I tasted everything that I wanted. I refused myself nothing. He was able to, to, to gratify every desire. He was in a place unlike any other man who could go after everything and not be limited by any shortage of resources or authority. He had it all. He could test it all. He could go through Vanity Fair and he could buy everything from every single kiosk. And he did. And he even said that in this, it's not that he just gave himself over in some kind of stupor. No, he was very reasonable in this. He tested. He made sure he kept his mind to him, so that he could really analyze and, and assess and compare and contrast. No, this is the pursuit of pleasure at the most intellectual, balanced level there can be, far greater than probably any of us have ever pursued pleasure. He is analyzing it from that perspective of his own wisdom. And as I said, his initial response was favorable. The pursuit of pleasure because of the way sin works, gives you that momentary sense in that I've accomplished something. I've got something. There's a moment there where you say, aha, I found it. And that's what Solomon does here in verse 10. He believes he receives the reward for his pursuits. It doesn't end there. That feeling of gratification, whether of the flesh or of the eyes, of the ego, as soon as it came, like a vapor, it was gone. He says in verse 11, thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the striving which I had exerted and behold, all was a vapor and striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun. Verse 11 provides the aftertaste of these things. And you know what that's like. You can eat a food and at the moment, it sure tastes good. You leave it a few moments and then it really bites in a painful way or in a detestable way, and that's exactly what Solomon goes through. There's that momentary pleasure, that sense of accomplishment, and he says, this is my reward, and in the next moment, the aftertaste sets in. And he uses three descriptions for this aftertaste. First of all, he calls it vanity, hebel, a vapor that vanishes quickly. Secondly, he calls it a striving after the wind to try to keep up that sense of gratification. It's like trying to follow the wind. You're running after it. You're trying to corral it. You're trying to keep it going in a certain way. You never can. And that's the way this is. And at the end of it, he says, there's no profit. There's no lasting gain. It doesn't help me with my problems. It doesn't give me a sense of meaning and significance of purpose in this life. Not at all. There is no prophets. One writer summarized it this way, all the sumptuous banqueting, the magnificent edifices, the delightful vineyards, parks, pleasure grounds, the charming streams, the splendid retinue of servants, the numerous herds, the costly treasures, the enchanting music, the amorous, the amorous delights, and the complete gratification of every desire so minutely and forcibly described in verses 3 to 10 were utterly insufficient to quiet the mind craving after higher enjoyments and to secure lasting happiness. And thus the pursuit after pleasure, like wisdom, proved mere vanity and striving after the wind. The Scottish poet Robert Burns, this is for Dr. McLeod. The Scottish poet, Robert Burns, summarized it quite well when he said this, but pleasures are like poppies spread. You seize the flower, its bloom is shed. 
Or like the snow falls in the river, a moment white then melts forever. Or like the Borealis race, the northern lights, that flit ear, you can point their place. Or like the rainbow's lovely form, evanishing amid the storm. Solomon then comes in this last portion to express the emptiness of it all. And that's our fourth point here, the emptiness of it all, verses 12 to 17. And this is pretty straightforward as he summarizes his experience here. Having reached this dead end once again, Solomon takes a step back, goes back to wisdom, human autonomous wisdom again, and and he says this, So I turn to consider wisdom, verse 12, madness and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? What Solomon is emphasizing here is that the experiment men has been exhausted. Understand this, what Solomon writes about here can't, can't be changed. He's tried it all. He's taken that investigation and he's pushed it to the limits. And so he is saying that there is nothing more that anyone after me could do to reach a different verdict. And yet how many men will take Solomon's words, read them, and then go out tonight and say, but I'm going to improve, I'm going to succeed where Solomon did not. Solomon is saying under sworn oath, men, you never will. One writer says this, the moral is obvious. What was true in the life of the world's most privileged person is bound to be true in the lives of us all. This is a warning not to treat the acquisition of wealth and power as the most important goal in life. Now Solomon considers to, continues to consider this. He, he does recognize once again there's a, a relative value for wisdom in, in, the, in the role of experiencing pleasure. He says in verses 13 and 14, he says, And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. He uses this analogy to, to show that even in this life, using human autonomous reasoning and wisdom, that it will go better for you. It will go better for you to use balance and judgment in the pursuit of pleasure. And the fool who just recklessly abandoned himself into this illicit indulgence is going to have a short life. It's going to end in destruction very quickly. Solomon recognizes the relative value of this wisdom for pursuing pleasure. But on the other hand, he, he recognizes that a, a, a prudent and sober approach will, will allow you to, to do what the fool cannot. You, you'll be able to live a little better and your life will be a little better than falling into that drunken stupor. But once again, Solomon recognizes the limit even to this. There is something called the great equalizer. It is death. Notice what he says in verses 14 to 16. At the end of 14, he says this, and yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity, for there is no lasting remembrance of the wise men as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how will the wise men and the fool alike die? Though they take different paths, both the fool and the wise man, subjecting themselves only to life under the sun and looking only to life under the sun will meet at the same destiny. It's called the grave. They'll be buried right beside each other. Death is the the great equalizer and it also is the great liquidator. Whatever was accomplished by the, the wise man is going to be liquidated. And in fact, both fool and wise men, Solomon says, will be forgotten. Richard Belcher says of this, thus it is death that destroys the distinction between the wise and the fool and makes the advantage that wisdom has over folly to be a relative advantage. Wisdom fails to give the wise person any ultimate advantage over the fool because death wipes out the distinction 
between the two. And so you can see that at the end of this section, as Solomon is still in this chapter of his life, still within the city limits of vanity, he says in verse 17, so I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. You can picture Solomon there in some alley in vanity and he's looking at all this and saying it's useless. Yet even in this, there is hope and the preacher isn't done yet. There's much more to look at in this book. He will not remain in the city of vanity. And what is hopeful in these words is that you can feel his pain. And that's a good thing. He could still feel the pain. You can see that this was a man who had a conscience that was pricked. He himself was feeling the goads. He was realizing, having tasted once of life above the sun, of having his his focus there above the sun as recognizing that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all things. He He had abandoned that, but he's realizing that in this pursuit, it's not giving him what he knows is available somewhere. He needs time to remember, and that he will And maybe this is you as well. Pain is that gift that nobody wants, but your health of soul is dependent upon feeling the pain that comes from the futility of these pleasures. Now, if you're here and you don't feel any pain, that is a huge problem. But if you're here, you've been in Solomon's footsteps, and you're coming to the same conclusions that you hate life, that's a good thing. The kind of life that you've been pursuing deserves to be hated. And Solomon is going to get to the point where he will return to the Lord. And he will see that the only solution is found in the one who is above the sun. As we wrap up and consider then some applications to this. Let's hear the preacher, his words, his goads to us. And in response to his testimony, consider these things. First of all, flight from reality into pleasure is not the answer. It never delivers on what it promises. And some of you may be on that that edge right now, where due to the circumstances in your life, and the failure of handling those circumstances and interpreting them correctly, according to the fear of the Lord, you are on the edge of a bad circumstance, and you're looking for some kind of solution. And you may be thinking even right now, maybe it's in the bottle, maybe it's in the drugs, maybe it's in that affair. I can escape. I can escape into some foreign woman's arms, And find my significance there. And Solomon is saying to you, I've tried it. It doesn't work. Don't do it. Flight from reality isn't, into pleasure is not the answer. Second, recognize you need something more in life to live for than the enjoyment of pleasure. That it never goes well when our priority is the pleasure. The the, the pleasure must come as a consequence of something greater. And then even as Solomon will go on to say in different points of the book, when our lives are oriented correctly and our priority is in God and that faithful, fearful reverence of him, then God does provide the pleasures. Solomon will not go on to say that our place is out in the desert on some pole living our lives in deprivation, but pleasure can never be the pursuit. The pleasure must always be the result of the priority of seeking the transcendent one. And then when that transcendent one is sought, he will provide the right kind of pleasures. Number three, what you live for 
must provide significance, not in spite of life's fleetingness, but because of it. In other words, as you seek significance, you must seek the kind of significance that is not just something to, to get you out of the problem. Instead, you, you must seek for the significance that comes in light of the fact that this life and everything under the sun is futile. It's a vapor. And that's what you must pursue in, in life. And of course, we who are the beneficiaries of this whole scriptures, we see, even as we sung earlier this evening, that we have come to, to see, to realize the one who provides us with just that significance. It is Christ Jesus. There is a hymn by Francis Bevan that is called, O Christ in thee my soul hath found. And we'll close with this. The verses provide such a wonderful summary of even what we have sought this evening. The hymn goes like this in one of the stanzas, I tried the broken cisterns, I tried the broken cisterns, uh, but how the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. Now none but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy. Christ Jesus found in me. And I want to say this, men. Don't leave tonight. If this hymn does not express the cry of, and song of your soul. If you have not come to find your satisfaction from Christ and your significance from him, you're going to walk out the door perhaps and you're just going to go back to the same routine. That's not the solution. Come to Christ. Find somebody here tonight, even come up to the front during the discussion time or after the discussion time. Find one of us who are here who can talk and we'll talk you through this. Don't keep trying what Solomon pronounced as futile. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect upon this portion of your word, we're brought back to the, the prayer of the hymn writer who said, fade, fade each earthly joy. Jesus is mine. Stronger than fleeting hopes, Jesus is mine. Dark is the wilderness. Earth has no resting place. Jesus alone can bless. Jesus is mine. For those who are in Christ, this prayer is so wonderful to us. We Identify with these precious words. We pray for those who have not yet come to recognize the offer of the gospel who are still trying to find this in the world. May you convict them and continue to make their lives miserable to feel the pain because in that there's hope. Hope of a repentance and a turn to the transcendent one. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.